Good morning. Well, we've been taking a break from First Peter, uh, just because there's a couple things we need to understand about God if we're going to understand what Peter is trying to say. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, God's glory and uh, how that God does everything for his glory. He runs everything he does through that filter of does it bring him glory. And how we looked at how that's good for us because what brings him glory is the display of his perfections. And we receive the benefit of that. And so today we want to talk about God's holiness. And uh, again, he runs everything through that filter of his holiness. So let's bow in prayer as we begin here. Father, we come to you as the God who is perfect in all things, always. And that perfection ought to profoundly impact our lives. And I pray that uh, we would just gain a glimpse into your holiness this morning and what that means for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. The year 1836 is very famous in Texan history. It's the year that 189 Texans died defending the Alamo. Now, the, uh, Texas had been Mexican territory, but uh, largely uninhabited. You had uh, some very wealthy, uh, not very many Mexicans, controlling vast uh, amounts of territory. And then the Americans simply moved in. They, they flooded the state with uh, settlers, and uh, once they had a majority, they now declared themselves free of uh, Texas, declared themselves a, a republic. And so naturally, uh, Mexico considered this an insult to their honor. And so in 1836, uh, General Santa Ana marched north to reclaim Texas. Texas was caught unprepared. It should have been a short and decisive war in favor of Mexico. Uh, Santa Ana should have been able to just completely run across uh, Texas, uh, but his pride got in the way. The Alamo was a strong fortress easily defended by a few men. But in this war, it had no real military value. Santa Ana should have just went by it, left them sitting there, came back and dealt with them afterwards. And if he had done so, he would have just overrun the, the state. However, uh, he'd been previously defeated at, at uh, the Alamo. And uh, he felt that his honor was at stake. And so when he attacked, the Alamo contained 190 men, along with some women and children. And the defenders of the Alamo knew that they would only be able to hold out for so long uh, against the thousands that Santa Ana had to throw against it. They also knew that uh, the Texans were unprepared for this battle and they needed time to uh, bring the men together and uh, get them ready to fight. And so, surrounded by an our enemy who was demanding their surrender, <clears throat> Travis, the commander, he gathered his 190 men, and he told them if they stayed and fought, death was certain. But that freedom for Texas was worth dying for. He was going to stay and fight to the end. And uh, according to history, he then took his sword, he drew a line in the sand, placing himself on one side from the man. And he told them, he said, those who are willing to stay and fight and give your lives, cross this line and stand with me. Those who wanted to surrender could stay on the other side of the line, 
and he would give them the freedom to either surrender or to try to escape. 189 men crossed the line that day. There was a couple well-known uh, American heroes. Davy Crockett was one of them. Jim Bowie was another. Jim was sick and couldn't get out of bed. And so he asked the others to actually carry him across the line. One man didn't cross the line. Suddenly he ran, climbed the wall, and escaped. Miraculously, somehow, he made it through the Mexican lines. It's estimated that they, during the 13 days that they held out, they killed about 100, uh, 600 Mexicans. But those 13 days what was what was needed for the Texans to gather an army and be prepared to meet the uh, Mexican army. Today I want to draw a line in the sand for you. And that line is called the holiness of God. In Leviticus 19, starting verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, because be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so what God is doing is he's drawing a line there in the sand, a line which demands a clear choice. On which side are you going to stand? On the side of holiness, or are you going to go on the other side? So what does it mean when God says, I am holy? And how does this draw a line in the sand for us? Well, in the Bible, the word holy is used in at least four different ways. And since we're dealing with the book of 1 Peter here, and uh, I'm not going to define uh, holiness in those other ways, but just in the sense that Peter's using it. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so Peter is using the word holy here in a moral sense, in the sense of being whole or healthy in the, uh, your morality. Now it's easy to understand what is not holy when we look at the extremes. One of Saddam Hussein's son had a nightly ritual. He would have his men bring him a kidnapped woman. After he was done with her, he would torture her to death. And the slower and more painful her death, the better he liked it. One of his favorite ways of torturing women was to pour acid on her and watch her slowly die. He didn't do this just to women, though. He also had men brought in to be tortured. He did this simply for his enjoyment. Now, we would say he's a sickle, that there's something seriously wrong with him, that he's morally, psychologically unhealthy. Holiness is the opposite, is to be morally healthy. Now, he is the extreme. All people understand there's a problem with sex life. But today there's so much that was once understood as morally unhealthy that's no longer understood that way. For example, sexuality outside of God's ordained purposes is now called good and healthy and no longer understood as sin. Pornography was once understood as morally unhealthy, but now for so many has become a normal form of entertainment. Lying in our culture 
is no longer lying, it's misinformation. And on we can just go, the list is endless. But there's so much that was once understood as morally unhealthy, unholy, that now they're saying is healthy. And so holiness is the opposite. It means to be morally whole or healthy, not as our culture defines it, but as God defines it. And holiness means to be separated from that, which is morally unhealthy. And so holiness can be defined as being separate from. God is separate from all that is sinful, all that is impure, all that is morally imperfect. It's the idea of creating a distance from it. Anything that is impure. Now I grew up on a farm. And sometimes an animal died. As the old saying goes, where you have livestock, potentially you have dead stock. And so if a cow died and was drug out somewhere to rot and returned to the earth, there was that process where it would swell up and blow it up as it decomposed. And there was that magical time of rottenness where it was bloated and under pressure and yet not decomposed enough to let all that gas escape. And that created a wonderful opportunity for a child to flirt with danger, to take a long pole and you poke at that carcass and you run. <laughs> and the idea was to poke a hole and see it explode into a cloud of foul gas and yet be able to escape smelling it. Now, we would do the same thing with wasp nests. We would take a stick, and you hit and poke at the nest, and you ran. The idea was to make them mad, and yet you escape without being stung. Now, the idea of those stories is to get as close as you can to the danger, and yet escape the consequences. And that's our human nature, is to get as close as we can to sin and yet try to escape the consequences. Holiness is the opposite of that. Holiness doesn't flirt with sin. Holiness is to stay as far possible away from sin. It's to be <coughs> separated from it. To put yourself, have a distance between you and your sin. But it's not just to be separate from. Holiness can also be defined as being separated onto. So it's not just keeping a distance from sin, it's a pursuit of what is right. It's the idea of being devoted to that which is pure. And so God is separated from all that is impure and morally imperfect, and he's separated onto all that is pure and morally perfect. And so God is completely whole or healthy in the moral sense. He's absolute moral perfection. He is everything that is right, it is who he is. God is so separated onto moral perfection that the Bible says he cannot even be tempted to do anything wrong. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is free from all defilement, free from all wrong. He's separated from anything that would make him spiritually unhealthy. We've just finished another political election in Alberta. And as usual, it seems that in politics in North America, the way you try to win 
is you try to find a scandal, some dirt on your opponent. And then you play that hard. And so thus we elect our leaders based on who has the least scandal attached to them. Or at least that's a political strategy. But you'll never find that with God. You'll never find God in a scandal. He is separate from all evil. And on the other hand, God is completely devoted to what is pure and good. Holiness has to include both aspects. Separate from what is impure, devoted to that which is pure. And so God's holiness is not just some abstract concept. It's his life practice. It is who he is. And that is when he says, be holy, that's what he's calling us to, is it becomes who you are. We were created in the image of God to reflect who he is. And so if he's holy, we're created to reflect that holiness. He's like the sun and we're like the moon. The moon has no light of its own. It simply reflects the light of the sun. God is holy and we're created to reflect that holiness, to be holy as he is holy. You know, I find great comfort and security in knowing that God is holy and that he can never deviate from this. Think about it. How many of you are basically nice people? Raise your hand. Some of you are saying, I'm not a nice person. No, it's okay. No trick question. You can admit that you think that you're basically a nice person. What if God were like that? What if he were only basically a nice person? What if God had his bad days? Perhaps a grumpy morning. What if God were only 99% devoted to good? And 99% separate from evil. You know, in human terms, if I were only, if I was 99% devoted to good and 99% separate from evil, you'd say, hey, he's a really nice guy. But think if you apply that to God. What if God had his bad days, his grumpy mornings? What if God were only 99% devoted to good? That'd make him very nice. But what if I were on the 1% receiving end of evil from God? And if he could be 1% evil, then the possibility exists that he could progress in evil. You know, for me, it's a comfort knowing and a security that God is 100% devoted to holiness, to good, to righteousness. And God can never deviate from that. Because I can then 100% trust him. So think of it as a line. Holiness draws that line. Everything above the line is holy, good, and righteous. This is what God is. Everything below the line is ungodly, unrighteous, self-seeking, impure, and unhealthy. This is what God isn't. And so this concept of holiness totally governs God as to who he is. He's separate from and he's devoted to. He's the standard. A.W. Tozer wrote it this way. He said, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He's absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible Fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, all of his attributes are holy. That is, 
Whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought as a holy one. End of quote. Everything that God is becomes the line for us. We're to be devoted to everything that's above that line, as God is. Be holy because I am holy. Be above the line because I am above the line. We're to be separate from everything below the line and devoted to everything above the line. So I want to just look for a few minutes just at uh, how this impacts God. Just as God's glory impacts all his attributes, God's holiness impacts his attributes. God can only exercise his abilities in holiness. For example, he's all-powerful. He can only use his power in good and healthy ways. He's all-loving. He can only express his love in perfect ways. In the Bible, we have the story of Jacob. And Jacob had four wives, 12 sons, and at least one daughter. But two of his sons were his favorites. Because in his four wives, he had one favorite wife. He loved her more than he loved the others. And so therefore, her children were loved more than his other sons. Joseph and Benjamin were the children of Rachel. So he loved Joseph and Benjamin more. Now this didn't make the others feel very good, knowing that their dad played favorites. And it ended up, when you read that story, in a lot of heartache. Joseph loved them all, but he loved some better than others. And he loved some imperfectly. God can't do that. Because he's holy. He can only exercise his love perfectly. Because it's defined by holiness. When you look at the world and the gods that people have created over the centuries, you never know from day to day how those gods are going to act. Today they might be in a good mood and they're going to overlook your foolishness. Or today they might be in a bad mood and they're going to punish you for your foolishness. Watch out. But again, God's holiness defines him. Because he's always devoted to good, God never changes. And his expectations of us never change. What was sin yesterday is still sin today. What was good yesterday is still good today. So our world sees sin differently as culture changes. What was sin yesterday may now be called good today. And what was good yesterday may now be called evil today. It's changeable according to people's thoughts. But God can never do that because he's holy. And his holiness makes him unchangeable. Holiness defines God's character the defining character for which God is known is holiness and uh, continually in heaven is being sounded out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That defines who he is. And God does not go outside of himself for another standard to judge his character by. Paul tells us, follow me as I follow Christ. God never tells us to follow him as he follows someone else. He is the standard. And his holiness is our example. You know, so often as parents, we're really telling our children, do as I say, not as I do. 
Just take a dad, for example, that's smoking and says to his son, you know, son, this is bad for your health. I don't want you doing this. God never asks for a standard of con conduct from us that he's not already doing. And if you want to know how to live, you need to get to know God and his character. So though, what would Jesus do? It's a good question. But only if you know who God is in his character. Otherwise, you'll base that question in your own thoughts. But if you know God, who he is in a char his character, then should I watch this movie? What does God's holiness say? Should I look at this media site? What does God's holiness say? And on we can go in any activity. Holiness also defines as beauty. So when you think of beauty, what do you think of? You maybe think of a certain person, a movie star. You might think of a sunset. Maybe you think of a baby, or it's a deer grazing in the field. There's many images of beauty out there, and they are beautiful. But does God's holiness come to your mind? Because God's holiness lies in his, or his beauty lies in his holiness. When Jesus came, he didn't choose a beautiful body. It says that he, in Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. As Jesus came, he chose to come just as an ordinary looking guy. God, when he chose a human body, did not emphasize physical beauty. Rather, he puts the emphasis of what's happening within. In the Old Testament, we're told to worship God in the beauty of holiness. It's the idea like putting holiness on like a beautiful garment. You might say to someone, you know, you look beautiful this morning. I really like what you're wearing. garment adds to the beauty well God approaches holiness like that when we wear holiness God sees us as beautiful but so do we later as we get in first Peter he actually uh, encourages the women to be more concerned about wearing the beauty that comes from that inner attitude than by what they're adorning themselves with not that it's not important to dress up nice, but it's more important to be wearing the beauty of holiness. Holiness also defines God's purpose for creation. God has created this earth and everything in it, including us, to reflect his holiness. And God is working history out to bring it to that final place where only his holiness is being reflected. Holiness defines his justice. And actually, as we're going to learn from Peter, holiness actually makes God fearsome. We live in a society that's lost its fear of God. When there's no consequences, then holiness loses its meaning. Let's put this into a, day, a daily example. Let's say you leave here and you're going to Edmonton. And you know with absolute certainty that there are no cops on that road. 
all the way. What speed are you going to drive? Change the scene. You know that around the next bend is a radar trap. What speed do you drive as you come around that bend? Change the scene. You're driving along much above the speed limit and you see those lights flashing in the distance. What do you immediately do? And you look down at the speedometer, don't you? You see, if you think there's no consequences, the law has no meaning to you. But the moment you think there may be consequences, suddenly the law has meaning. And it's the same thing with God's holiness. Our society thinks that there is no God, they think there is no consequences. And so holiness has very little meaning to them. And for us as believers, when we understand holiness, it brings a healthy respect and fear into our lives. You know, the world hates God because he's above the line. They also should fear God because he's above the line. Because that means when he's above the line and they're below the line, a fearful judgment is coming. They try to get around this by declaring that there is no God. They think if they can convince themselves that there is no God, then they also have convinced themselves that there is no judgment coming. And thus they can do what they want. But convincing themselves that there is no God does not remove God or remove the coming judgment. Let's go back to your speeding again. Let's say you totally convince yourself in the mind, your mind that there is no laws and you convince yourself that there are no cops and there are no judges and there are no fines. And so one day you're doing 140 going to Edmonton and you see those lights and you stop. And the officer says, I'm going to give you a ticket. And you say, you can't. Why can't I? Well, I don't believe you exist. <laughs> and I don't believe that there's laws. What's going to happen? You're still going to get the ticket. And unfortunately, that's what's going to happen with everyone one day when they stand before God in his holiness. And they say to him, I didn't believe that you existed. I don't believe you exist. I don't believe in your laws. They're still going to face his holiness. You see, convincing yourself that there is no God does not remove God or his coming judgment. It only allows you to live a delusional life out of touch with reality. Because God is above the line, he is to be taken seriously. It's dangerous to take God casually. So here's an important principle that we must remember. Whatever is not defined by holiness is sin. Whatever does not measure up to God's holiness is sin. When we do not know what God calls holiness, then we begin to accept things that are sin and we do not realize that they're sin. And we find, I find Christians who say they've walked with God all their lives and today they're saying, you know, living together, well, that's okay. Same-sex relationships, well, that's okay. And these are people who say they're born-again Christians. 
Our leaders lie to us, and well, that's okay. Or we live lives of luxury. Meanwhile, we have friends and neighbors that are struggling when we're not willing to be generous. We need to go back to what is God saying, what is holiness saying, and it will change our lives. And so holiness creates a line, and we're called to live above that line. Peter says, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter is saying we're to live above that line, to be holy. Our human tendency is to create lines below that lines, and then we say we're good. Lesser lines by which we measure ourselves. And so if we make that lesser line and we attain to that, then we think we're good. So-and-so, he drives 130. But I drive 115. I'm okay. He's not. And we make these judgments. And we pride ourselves of attaining our lesser line. Meanwhile, we're still below God's line. The problem with lesser lines is that it allows us to ignore the sin in our lives. It allows us not to deal with that sin. And that is the purpose of why we create lines that are lesser than God's line. Because when we create lesser lines, it allows us not to have to deal with our lives. And the end result, when we're pursuing lesser lines, the next generation sees the hypocrisy of it. And they often then will create lines that are even lower. Because they're no longer looking at God's line. They're looking at their parents' line. And they'll create a line lower and say, I'm okay if I meet this. Some example of lesser lines. Jesus nailed the Pharisees for this one. The Pharisee said, I will not have an affair with a woman. Yet they entertain lust in their hearts. They thought it was okay to look at a woman lustfully as long as they didn't act it out. And Jesus said, really, you're no different than the one who's acting it out. You're not pursuing holiness. Today, it's, well, I won't have an affair, but it's okay to look at pornography. We're not pursuing holiness when we do this. The Pharisees would tie, tithe everything, even the herbs in their garden, yet they refused to meet the needs around them, even the needs of their own parents. Their line was, if I tithe, I don't have to be generous to people. I'm good. And Jesus said, no, nah, that's all below the line. Sin is only understood in the context of, of God's holiness, of what's above the line. And when we lose our understanding of God's holiness, we lose our concept of sin. When we lose our concept of sin, we lose our fear of the consequences of sin, and then we easily flirt with danger, thinking that it will not happen to us. We can poke that dead cow, get the thrill, and not have to have the consequences. We can poke that wasp nest 
and get the adrenaline rush of running away from it and not get stung, so we think. Two drivers were interviewed for a job in an open pit mine. And so you picture this, one of those deep open pit mines, really wide, and that road is on, built into the outside cliff, and it's winding down and down. It's getting narrower as it goes to the bottom. And so the interviewer was interviewing two drivers, and um, he interviewed the first one. He said, so how confident are you driving to the, close to the edge of that road going down there? And the driver boasted. He said, I have a lot of experience. I'm a good driver. I can drive right up on the edge of that road, and it doesn't bother me. The other driver had a whole lot less experience, and when he was asked, how comfortable are you driving close to the edge? And he said, I'm afraid of the edge. And I drive as close into the bank, as far away from that edge as I can possibly get. He was the one who got the job. Well, you know, that's the concept of holiness. We don't ride that line. We don't try to get close to the edge. We live our lives above, separate from the other. So as I close this morning, I want to ask you, where do you find your line? Is it the line that God has drawn? Or is it one of your making? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you're a holy God. And because of that, we can fully trust you. Because you're holy, you're unchangeable. And help us to understand that being holy is good. And I just pray that your spirit would speak to us. Apply this to our own lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.